This episode is sponsored by our upcoming Mind Body Psychotherapy online conference taking place on the 29th of May, 2022. In this lecture series, we'll explore the fascinating new science of the mind-body connection and how it can be applied to transform therapeutic practice. You'll learn how the mind affects us biologically, how what happens in the body influences the mind, and how to apply these cutting-edge insights to enhance your therapeutic work. We'll have talks from three speakers at the forefront of the field, including Dr. Pat Ogden, who will present on sensory motor psychotherapy in context, Susan Aposhin, who will give a talk on her innovative body-mind psychotherapy approach, and Deirdre Fay, whose topic will be Becoming Safely Embodied. By attending live, you can interact with the speakers in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, get CPD certification and lifetime access to the recordings from the sessions. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash mb-2022 and use the discount code POD when registering. That's POD, all one word, when registering. Okay, everybody, welcome back to our third and final session today. Um, we're going to have a talk on nurturance, psychological flexibility, and behavior change from Dr. Anthony Biglin. So Dr. Biglin is a senior scientist at Oregon Research Institute and president of Values to Action. His book, The Nurture Effect, How the Science of Human Behavior Can Improve Our Lives and Our World, describes how behavioral science research has brought us to the point where it is possible to evolve a society in which virtually every person is living a productive life in caring relationships with others. His new book, Rebooting Capitalism, explains how we, evolved, how, how we evolved a form of capitalism over the last 50 years that has impoverished millions of Americans, undermined the regulation of harmful business practices, and corrupted most of the major sectors of, of society. The book provides a roadmap for how we can evolve a more nurturing form of capitalism. You can learn more about Dr. Biglin's work at www.valuestoaction.com and follow him on Twitter at abiglin. So I'm really excited about this final talk and Dr. Biglin, whenever you're, you're ready, we'll just get started. Thank you. <clears throat> so um, the first thing I'd like to do is ask you some questions. And these are the questions. I'd like to, uh, at, we're gonna poll you. We're gonna ask you if you're satisfied with the state of the world and ask you, are you frustrated by not knowing what you can do to affect our many problems? And finally, would you like to find a way to contribute to change that wouldn't require you to quit your job, your education, your family, or your recreation? So we're gonna start by asking you to complete those questions. And I'll give you a couple minutes to do that. So we'll come back to your answers to those questions a little later in the talk. But um, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to suggest that we have pretty much figured out what human beings need to thrive. And I've come to call that the nurture consilience. A consilience is, involves an agreement between the approaches to a topic of different academic subjects, especially science and the humanities. So in other words, 
I, I, I don't know, you've just heard David Sloan Wilson, and he loves to talk about the ivory archipelago, all of these different academic areas, each of them on an island, not knowing about the other islands. And he's done a great deal to bring them together. And uh, what I've come to think is that um, there is a consilience that has, uh, is emerging among all the human sciences. And uh, I would argue that diverse disciplines, including evolutionary biology, medicine, public health, social work, social and clinical and developmental psychology, are converging in identifying the environmental conditions that promote versus undermine well-being. And this is extremely important in terms of how we evolve societies that are seeing to the well-being of every person. I found it useful to organize the evidence around the concept of nurturance. So what do I mean by nurturance? Well, nurturing environments uh, minimize toxic biological and social conditions. They limit opportunities and influences for problem behavior. Opportunities like uh, kids home alone after school without adult supervision, uh, where it's been shown that kids are more likely to start to experiment with problem behaviors but also influences for problem behavior, such as the marketing of tobacco, the marketing of uh, alcohol, uh, the marketing of unhealthful food, the marketing of guns in the United States, uh, and, and then, and in fact, the marketing of, of fossil fuels and, and harmful pharmaceutical uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, the third thing is that nurturing environments richly reinforce diverse forms of pro-social behavior. And I'm not talking about M&Ms and, and stickers. I'm talking about listening and caring and hugging and respecting uh, and cooperating. These are all vital uh, aspects of human relationships that nurture the well-being of the people who are exposed to them. And finally, uh, nurturing environments promote psychological flexibility, which is the mindful and pragmatic pursuit of one's values, even in the context of troubling thoughts and feelings. I'm going to talk a little bit more about each of those. And I want to start with toxic social conditions. And the reason I would do that is because I would argue that those conditions uh, are the fundamental process that undermines uh, positive relationships among people. So this is a, uh, a slide that shows fast developmental pathways. So uh, the, the developmental path of children and one of the things that it, it shows is that poverty and discrimination increase the likelihood that families will be living in coercive social environments. And by coercive social environments, I mean that people um, use aversive behavior to try and affect each other's behavior. Those conditions lead to the development of poor self-regulation among kids. Uh, that is associated with increases in aggressive and cooperative and uncooperative behavior among kids. And when those kids get to school, they're significantly more likely to fail academically, to be rejected by peers, to form deviant peer groups. And those deviant peer groups are a training ground for the development of drug abuse, depression, antisocial behavior, and early child rearing. And the reason that I emphasize early child rearing is that there's a good argument to be made that humans have evolved essentially two ways of dealing with the world uh, as they develop. In the context of coercive, threatening environments, uh, kids uh, have this fast developmental pathway where they start to engage in uh, early in a problematic behavior 
including early childbearing. And there's an argument to be made that in a dangerous world, if you don't have your babies early, you won't have them at all. And that humans have evolved uh, a response to threatening environments that leads to earlier uh, procreation, uh, because in a dangerous world, that's the only way we have survived. And so this fast developmental pathway is, 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 the, is the process by which uh, all of these kinds of problems uh, become more likely to occur. The other thing I'd point out is that uh, these coercive environments, str stressful social environments, lead to cardiovascular disease uh, directly in terms of the physiological processes that they begin. So this is all um, what we need to understand in terms of toxic social environments and why they're so important to, to deal with. Uh, there's a wonderful book by Robert Sapolsky called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and it's a compendium of all of the stressful uh, process, processes that are, all, all of the ways in which stress affects human beings, and the book is about this thick. There are a lot of ways that stress affects us. So, um, but zebras don't seem to have those uh, problems that humans have. So the way it works is uh, there's a stressor. Let's say the zebra sees a lion. It causes a cascade of hormones that results in the, re the uh, release of cortisol, uh, which increases the heart rate and the blood pressure and enables the organism to either take flight or to fight. And if you're a zebra and the stressor is a lion, it's probably a good bet to start taking flight. Uh, and if, you're, if the zebra is fortunate enough to have an older, slower zebra nearby, uh, the zebra gets away. And what happens? Uh, well, the hormones get reabsorbed, the heart rate goes down, the blood pressure goes down, it's over. And so uh, for most organisms, uh, stress occurs when the stimulus is right there, and that's about it. But for humans, it's a different story. And if I could see you, I would ask you to raise your hand if you've ever had this experience, that you were lying in bed, stressing about somebody who wasn't lying next to you. And I have done this in probably a hundred talks and most people raise their hand. Humans are able to be in the, in the presence of stressful stimuli simply uh, because their minds allow them to think of things that could happen, that did happen, uh, that keep us stressed. And so this is one of the major uh, things we need to understand about the ways that human well-being is, is, is affected. And I'll, come back to some further thoughts about that in a bit. But I uh, have found, you know, as I've studied this, I go, well, you know, when you, when you dig into this, you know, well, basically everybody needs a hug. If, if a hug is something that will work for them, uh, that's been kind of a problem in the pandemic. I've just gone back to hugging my uh, grandson uh, recently. But um, if you, um, but, but the image of hugging a, uh, a, uh, a, an HPA axis isn't very appealing, which is why I have this slide, which is my son, Mike, and his son, Grayson. This is my grandson, who's now 10 years old. And when I saw this picture, I had to put it in the slide. So at least for me, this is, evokes the, the feelings of wanting to hug and care for people. But it's not just human beings. Uh, this is Cat Charlie, who may come interrupt us as, as I'm talking. And here's Charlie, and he's sitting in the light of the skylight, and he's warm, and he's well-fed, and, 
And that's what humans and all organisms uh, are, are striving for, are safe environments. So um, we need that kind of nurturance. So um, then there's slow development. Uh, the alternative to the fast developmental pathway where you're having your babies early is uh, that people living in nurturing environments develop good self-regulation. They develop language and social skills. And what do you get? You get academic success, pro-sociality, good friendship formation. And by the time they're adults, you're raising compassionate, multiply skilled, resilient, and values-oriented people. And I submit that this is fundamental to the well-being of society, that we need to create these conditions for every person. It needs to be a value, and it needs to be uh, when we need to create these kinds of nurturing environments. So I want to talk about the power of prevention, because um, we have learned an enormous amount over the last 40 years about how we can prevent the development of problems that I've, I've mentioned so far. Uh, and in fact, uh, I was on a National Academy of Medicine uh, uh, study section that uh, reviewed the evidence on prevention. And even in 2009, we concluded that the foundation, the science is there to ensure that virtually every young person arrives at adulthood with the skills, interests, values, and health habits they need to lead a productive life in caring relationships with other people, which is uh, the introduction uh, mentioned that. That's been my mantra. I wrote uh, The Nurture Effect uh, because um, I thought that I could articulate this in a way that people would, uh, would get it and we could spread the word about the environments that we need. And we're making quite a bit of progress on that. This is also from the uh, National Academy report. These are the, the developmental phases. And every one of these bracketed items refers to a program or set of programs that have been shown to have a significant benefit uh, in preventing the entire range of problems. They prevent the entire range of problems because they change the environment and the environments that are harsh and, and, and stressful environments are, are contribute to all of these different problems. So. Whereas we're, you know, we've tended in the society to, to say, well, some people are working on reducing tobacco use and other people are working on reducing alcohol use and other people are working on reducing antisocial behavior and so on. We need to understand that all of these problems stem from the same environments. And if we could go back and change those environments, we can prevent the entire range of problems. And the, the evidence from these uh, studies that are uh, uh, alluded to here uh, makes that very clear. The other thing is that uh, the evidence is uh, pretty clear that most of these interventions uh, have benefit uh, long after the, it, the uh, intervention's been uh, put in place. And uh, there's a, a positive return on investment. And I'm gonna mention some that, that have just amazing return on investment. So we have a, a whole range of things and they're not just programs, they're also policies. Uh, that can change uh, well-being policies like uh, taxing uh, the uh, cost of alcohol and tobacco, which reduces the number of people who start and become addicted to those substances. Um, so this is a, a chart of, uh, I'm, these are family interventions. And I think this is one of the areas where we've made really considerable progress. Uh, this is a list of eight uh, family interventions. And what you hear, see here uh, on the column on impact is the uh, problems that they affect. And if you studied this 
chart and this one because these are these are two charts that cover 16 family interventions that have been shown to have benefit. And you'll see that most of them have a benefit in preventing the entire range of problems, just as I argued. So we have a wealth of interventions that can help people uh, to create family environments that are limit coercion, they limit the use of aversive behavior, and they promote uh, positive behavior in families and, and being parent and child interactions and, and outcomes uh, that are really quite positive. Just to mention a couple, the Nurse Family Partnership is a program that uh, has been implemented in the, in the UK and around the world. Uh, it was developed by a psychologist in Australia. Um, no, I take that back. Uh, I, this was developed by a psychologist who was at the University of Rochester, my alma mater in Rochester, New York. What he found is that if he could uh, get uh, a nurse to befriend uh, high-risk pregnant moms, that uh, he could help them to uh, make their way through the pregnancy in the first two years of life in a way that was quite beneficial. So uh, the nurse you know, I mean, imagine you're you're 16 years old. You discover you're pregnant, and the the guy who's the father doesn't says it isn't his, and you don't want to marry him anyway. You can imagine the 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 stress and and fear, and your your parents are angry, and and what do you do? And a nurse arrives at your doorstep, and she listens to you, and she's not judgmental, and she starts by saying, well. It starts by trying to help you find some social support. So, well, do you have anybody who could help you? Well, I got this aunt and she's, you know, she's not, she doesn't judge me. And she, you know, okay, why don't you talk to her about this? And I'll be back next week and we'll see how it's going. So she helps her build social support and helps her work out her relationships with their parents and so on. But she also sees to it that the, she gets good prenatal care if she's smoking, encourages her to stop smoking. And once the baby is born, she helps her with mothering. I mean, you know, you know any if, you, if you've had a first child, you know what it's like when that baby starts crying and you don't know what to do and you're not sure. Uh, and so having somebody say, yeah, that's normal. It's okay. Here are things you can do. Uh, that's a lot of help. And then also she would work on contraception to prevent the likelihood that the, the mother is going to have a second baby. And then, she, but one of the, actually one of the things she starts early on is, so what kind of work do you want to do? What, where do you want to go in life? So she gets her on an educational track and so on. This is actually a mom who was in that program. And the results of this program over three randomized trials and hundreds of thousands of, of mothers who've received the program uh, shows that, uh, it has reduced abuse and neglect. It, redu it improves children's de behavioral development. It improves mother's economic well-being, and it increases the time to the next baby, which is particularly important. But it also affects uh, the likelihood that kids will be arrested. This is a chart of the proportion of kids who were arrested by f age 15. Now, they only got this program prenatal and the first two years of life. By the age of 15, these kids were significantly less likely uh, to be arrested uh, as a result of the program. So it's just a, one example of what we can do when we provide the supports that family needs, families need uh, to raise their children. So here's one other. This is the Australian uh, program, Positive Parenting, which has been done in the UK. 
It's a community-wide system of parenting supports, and it includes brief media communications, brief advice for specific problems, but it also provides more extensive interventions when they're needed. There have been multiple randomized trials showing the benefit of it, including one in, in South Carolina, where they took 18 counties and they had nine of those counties randomized to get uh, this program. And what they found was that um, over uh, the next couple years, there was, a, there was a significant reduction in, uh, in prevention of uh, child maltreatment uh, and of out-of-home placement. And so, you know, this is, these are just two examples of the programs that help uh, families to become more nurturing and change the, the life course of, of, the, of the kids who benefit from these programs. Then there are school interventions. Um, school interventions uh, like um, professional development for preschool providers, which has been shown to improve outcomes for young kids or the PATHS program, or the Positive Behavior Intervention Support, Positive Action, and the Seattle Development Program. These are all programs that have shown ways to make schools more nurturing, uh, and I'm gonna tell you about just one of those. It's the Good Behavior Game. Good Behavior Game is a classroom, a, a program where small groups of kids, like three or four kids, work together, and if they're on task and they're uh, you know, doing their work and they're not disruptive and so on. For you, you might start with five minutes of playing this good behavior game, but you can work up to you know kids working for 45 minutes, uh, and they get small rewards for being on task and cooperative. The effects of this program have been amazing. Uh, there was a randomized trial of the program in inner city Baltimore with high poverty kids, mostly African American. And what they found was that even in the first month of the program, there was more time for teaching and learning. There was less stress for staff and students. And over the first year, there was better attendance, fewer referrals, fewer service needs, less illness, happier families, less vandalism, and better academics. But the amazing thing is this program, the kids only got in first and second grade. Uh, they followed these kids uh, to two or three years after that, and there was less likely uh, uh, that kids would develop ADHD, the uh, hyperactivity and so on, less oppositional defiant disorders, and less special education. When they looked at these kids in middle school, they discovered that the kids were less likely to be using tobacco and alcohol. They had fewer, fewer conduct disorders and less depression. They followed these kids into early adulthood, and they found that they had less crime and violence, less suicide, were more likely to graduate from high school, and more likely to, uh, uh, to attend the university. And there's a new paper that just came out that showed that people were more likely to vote if they were in this program. So there are tremendous benefits to this program. And in fact, uh, an analysis of the cost benefits of it uh, showed that uh, the return on investment was 25%. Now, if you could take some money and put it in the bank and get 25% for it, uh, you would be a very lucky investor. But these programs significantly reduce the costs. Uh, they increase the in lifetime income of, of the kids to benefit from it. They reduce uh, taxpayers' expenses. Uh, they reduce healthcare costs, uh, criminal justice costs. The point is that we have these programs and what we need to do is widely implement them. And that's much of what the uh, the behavioral science community has been doing over the last uh, 10 years is trying to 
get better and better at getting these programs out. I'm going to skip this in the interest of time. And uh, this, this is just a list of the simple uh, behavior influence techniques that have been added to the PAX Good Behavior Game. And I've been involved in the in implementation of this. It's, it's currently in about uh, 30,000 classrooms worldwide. And it's really beautiful. The teachers love it. The kids love it. Um, I'll just uh, take one example. Granny's Wacky Prizes. Teacher has a bag of prizes and she can pull out a one at random. And so if the kids are on task during their good behavior game, they get to do silly things like march around the room in a conga line or uh, 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 lie on the floor and, and uh, the teacher comes around and makes faces and tries to make them laugh. And so what they do is they take things that kids traditionally want to do in class and the teacher doesn't want them to do, and they make them contingent so that those are rewards for being cooperative, and it, it works marvelously. So, um, it, and, and by the way, you, you can, if you want to know more about any of this stuff, you can read my book. I have this uh, tacky book promotion here, um, and um, nur the nurture effect, and you can learn more about this, but I'm happy to, to help you uh, learn more about these things. So, you can uh, email me at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at O-R-I dot O-R-G. Uh, this is a toodle note. This is another one of the kernels, and this is one I love. I love your fashion and hair style. You're such a problem solver. These are notes that kids write to each other. They get practice in writing, and it increases friendships and warmth, and it, and it, and it, it gets the kids rewarding positive behavior. So it's not just the teacher, but the kids who are doing that, and it, it's really great. Then there's psychological flexibility, which I mentioned before. Remember when you were lying in bed stressing about someone who wasn't lying next to you? Well, psychological flexibility is about a way to approach this. It's a way of holding your thoughts and feelings differently, looking at them rather than through them. You're lying in bed, you're thinking about that person who's been difficult with you at work, and you are you might as well be there in the situation where that person's being difficult because you're you're just seeing the world through those thoughts. But it turns out that you can step back and notice, hey, I'm lying in bed. I'm having these thoughts and feelings. Oh, I don't like I'm having these thoughts and feelings, but they're thoughts and feelings. I notice them. I don't have to believe them. And so psychological flexibility is about being willing to have whatever thoughts and feelings you have without judgment or struggling to control them. Because it turns out that struggling to control them guarantees that you will have those thoughts and feelings. Don't think about chocolate cake. Uh, if I took a minute and asked you to sit there and not think about chocolate cake, what would you think about? Chocolate cake. So just noticing the thoughts you have and accepting them, even an acceptance is just saying, yeah, they're there. It doesn't have to accept them in the sense you love them, is a move that has been remarkable in helping people deal with all kinds of psychological and, and behavioral problems. Uh, there are hundreds of studies now that have shown the benefit of this for things as, that range from quitting smoking to uh, having uh, uh, delusions and, and uh, hallucinations. So psychological flexibility is about choosing what values you want to live by. So, uh, and, 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 and this is important to, to, to emphasize because it's a matter of, um, of, um, making your life about the things that are important and accepting that 
on the path to try to do something important, stuff will come up like I'm not good enough, I couldn't do this and so on. And you can have those thoughts and feelings and you can say, come on gang, we're going forward with these things. So it's about acting on your values even when you have doubts. And this, uh, so the next time you're lying in bed stressing about someone, see if you can step back from your thoughts and notice that you're having them. See if you can accept your thoughts and feelings. Yes, you're having them. See if you can hold them with compassion. Yes, I'm distressed. No, I don't like these feelings. And I'm willing to have them and hold them lovingly. See if you can identify an important value that underlies your distress. Because very often our distress is the result of things that are important to us that we're, we can't have or have trouble reaching. Is there an action you could take relevant to this situation that would be in the service of, um, of uh, <laughs> I can't see all of the slide, that would be in the service of the values that are important to you. You can have these feelings and you can take steps and move forward. So here are uh, some resources if you want to know more about acceptance and commitment training. Um, and you can use these QR codes. If you have a phone that uh, will read QR codes, it'll take you to these websites. Uh, this one is uh, about, I think this should be a link to um, the happiness trap. And this should be a link to a new form of consciousness. Um, uh, there, this is an essay on a new form of consciousness, which is a book by Stephen Hayes, who is the developer of this. And I suspect that David Sloan Wilson has already talked about it. So um, I think we're uh, ready for some uh, five minutes of questions and discussion, but I'll leave this up so you can uh, make use of it while we do the five minutes. And um, let's see, I think I'm going to get the word about what questions have been raised. Is that true um so if anybody's got any questions for dr bigland if you just type them into the chat and then we can we can go through some of them now otherwise we can wait to the final the final 20 minutes of the session so any questions so far okay well i see a question is adhd a neurological disorder uh, how can it be uh, averted by a program like this? Yeah, um, ADHD has been characterized as a neurological disorder, and people are being medicated for it. Children are being medicated for it. And it, what can I say? Uh, you can think of it as a neurological disorder. Uh, there's a neurology involved in it, but it's not a neurological disorder in the sense that the brain is broken and, and kids are therefore uh, hyperactive and, and uncooperative. Uh, kids are hyperactive and uncooperative when they live in environments that fail to reinforce the pro-social behavior. The PAX Good Behavior Game has been shown to prevent the development of ADHD. Uh, so. I, you know, my bias is to focus on creating the environments that can uh, cause these problems. And I think that we medicalize behavioral problems far more than we should. Uh, we need to change people's environments. Uh, and in fact, the good behavior game is just this b beautiful thing, but it's, it's not different from family interventions that similarly um, help families to create environments that 
uh, to promote pro-social behavior. Uh, so, um, hidden depressive states. Yes, yes, uh, 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 Neil Connolly, I, I agree with you. Uh, yes, it, it, you know, depression is again uh, largely a function of the environment. I, I, you know, I can, in my experience as a clinical psychologist, I've often done an intake and gotten to know a person who was having problems with depression. And I very often found myself saying, if I had had the experiences you've had, I'd be depressed too. And so again, it's environments that we need to change if we want to uh, change people's uh, lives. Um, so I think we should move on. There's another one Unless, more question from Daria. Dr. Biggin, um, what would yeah. you advise in terms of implementing the good behavior game at schools, considering that most teachers are already overwhelmed with tasks and systematic workload? What can she do as a parent to make the program work at her kid's school? Uh, actually, we're developing a, I'm going to talk a little later about, we're developing a program to help people uh, get these things implemented. Uh, what has happened with the good behavior game is that uh, you help teachers do that, do the implement the game, and they discover that kids are becoming more cooperative. The disruptive rates of disruptive behavior go down. Uh, there's more time for teaching and learning. Uh, and I mean, just take getting kids from point A to point B. It's time to leave the classroom and go to lunch. Let's say. That can be chaotic. It can be pushing and shoving, and it, it's it's a you know difficult time, and it takes a long time, and that takes away from instruction. Uh, the PACS Good Behavior Game, uh, you can teach kids to line up. Uh, one of the kernels is PACS hands and feet, and you teach kids you know not to touch and so on. But you do it you know positively. You 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 have the kids say what they want to do. Uh, one of the first kernels is the PAX vision. And you ask the kids, what would you like, if this were the most wonderful classroom you've ever been, what would you want to see, hear, feel, and do more of? And then you ask them, what would you like to see, hear, or feel, and do less of? And so you have, and they create a chart. And that's a, an active chart that the teacher can use every day. Okay, class, we're going to do 15 minutes of silent reading. Now, what would be some, some, packs, the positive things we'd want to see. And what would be some spleens, a made up word that describes the things you don't want to see. And the kids participate in saying this. When people participate in saying what it should be, they're more likely to comply than when the teacher says, you must do this. And so what we found, I introduced this into uh, three elementary schools in Yamhill County, Oregon. Uh, and by the end, and it was just in some of the classrooms. And by the end of uh, the uh, year, uh, they, the whole school wanted it. And we, there are seven school districts in Yamhill County. And uh, by four years later, all but one of the school districts had implemented the good behavior game, uh, you know, school-wide. So uh, I think the answer is that the teachers like this because it works for them. And I, you know, I mean, there was one school that I remember going to and every time I went to the uh, arrived at the office, there would be a child or two cr sitting on the bench crying. I didn't see that after a year. So uh, I think the answer is that, you know, you try it and if it works for you, 
and it usually does, uh, that's how it's been spreading. Uh, so I'm going to go on. Um, so I've given you all these things that we could do, programs and policies that could help things, but I want to also suggest that simply widely implementing implementing nurturing treatment and prevention programs is not enough if our societies continue to harm millions of people. And so we need to understand how capitalism took us where we didn't want to go. So I'm going to talk about the rise of the conservative billionaire coalition. This is a story largely of the United States, but I'll get back to the UK because it, it's relevant to the UK as well. So this is the rate of poverty of children. The U.S. has one of the highest rates of child poverty of any developed country. And as you can see, uh, American Indian, uh, black and Hispanic families, they're significantly more likely to have poverty, though there's, you know, 10%, 11% for kids under five. Poverty is a significant risk factor that contributes to all of the problems we have. But there's also the problem of economic inequality. Uh, this is a slide that shows the index of health problems and social problems. And if we stopped and took five minutes to just brainstorm what they were, they're in this index, uh, all kinds of psychological and behavioral and health problems. And what you find here is that the countries are differ in terms of the degree to which there uh, is economic inequality. And you have uh, Finland, Norway, Sweden, Japan, very low levels of economic inequality and very low levels of these, in, of these problems. And then there's the USA. We're number one. We have the highest level of economic inequality of any developed country. And by the way, we have the highest level of all of these problems. However, uh, there's also the UK, which is also high in economic inequality. And this is a risk factor for all of the kinds of problems that we have, and we need to reduce economic inequality. And then um, in the United States, what's happened is that over the past 50 years, America has become far less nurturing of those who are poorer. Economic inequality and poverty have increased greatly. Social mobility, the chance that a poor child will move out of poverty has virtually disappeared. So how did this happen? Well, here's a brief history of the evolution of capitalism in the US. 1970, there were more than 1900 bombings of businesses. Uh, business was reviled by much of the population, especially the young population. And so the business community had great reason to be concerned about the future of capitalism. Lewis Powell, who would later be uh, put on the Supreme Court, wrote a memo to his neighbor who was the the head of the uh, education committee for the Chamber of Commerce. And it was a memo that really was quite perceptive in terms of the, the threat to business and what needed to be done. And he argued that independent and uncoordinated activity by individual corporations, as important as this is, will not be sufficient. He said that strength lies in organization and careful long range planning and implementation and in consistency of action over an indefinite period of years in the scale of financing available only through joint effort and in the political power available only through united uh, action and national organizations. They, the business community formed a coalition that advocated for free market economics uh, and they were very successful in doing that and they increased economic inequality and they increased poverty. And I'm just going to show you um, how successful they were with this. Um, 
and here's here's and and David Sloan Wilson talked to you about selection by consequences. This is an example of selection by consequences. Lewis Powell wrote his memo in 1970, and this is a chart of the wealth, the share of wealth that the top one tenth of one percent uh, of people in the United States had. And as you can see, by 1978, it began to change and the wealth of the top one tenth of 1% has climbed and climbed and climbed. And since 2013, it's climbed even more. Um, and so what the advocacy for uh, free market economics and uh, you know low regulation and low taxes and low government and so on uh, benefited the wealthy who were advocating it very nicely. This is selection by consequences. This is the same as reinforcement of the behavior of an individual. Uh, they got better and better at advocacy. They tried things that worked. They kept them. They tried things that didn't work. They changed them. And so this is how it happened. Uh, and I, now I want to go back and mention that um, what we learned from the Brexit, Brexit vote, because this is not just the story of the United States. According to Carol Cod, uh, Cadwalder of The Guardian, a large proportion of relatively disadvantaged people in the UK were willing to leave the EU in order to punish the elites. The same problem we have in the United States where less advantaged people are resentful of the elites, uh, of the, the people who have lots of money, uh, and it's a problem in the United States, it's a problem in the UK, and it, it's a, increasingly a problem worldwide. And it comes back to the question of what we want for all of our people. So, um, which brings me to, to uh, rebooting capitalism, how we can fo forge a society that works for everyone. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to, it, it's basically uh, the second half of this book is the way in which we can improve health, higher education can improve well-being, all that we can reform the criminal justice system, evolve social and news media that promote pro-social behavior. We have, can address climate change and a political system and create a political system that works for all of us. The book is basically, here's what we can do about this. And I've created an organization called Values to Action because, uh, you know, I wrote The Nurture Effect and it was well received, but it didn't really have as much impact as I would have liked. And I've concluded that what we need is to organize, to have a social movement. And that's what I've been working on. Uh, so if you are interested in either of these books, you can, if, I'm going to move ahead on this. So uh, I'm just going to say, if you go to valuesdaction.com, you can learn more about the books. You can also learn more about what Values to Action is doing. Uh, so I'm just going to keep on moving uh, and we'll come to questions at the end. So here's a way of thinking about it. I suggest that we have a choice. We have a choice between a society which is marked by nurturance, where it's the foundational value, or one that's marked by self-aggrandizement. If I just pursue my own money, uh, it'll benefit everyone, which has been the mantra of free market economics. So at the individual level, what are we doing? We're, we're, we want to have a world in which people are psychologically fle flexible, they're living their pro-social values and caring relationships with others. And it's a choice between that or self-aggrandizement. I want to be rich. I want to be famous. The more money I make, the better it is for everyone. That's the choice at the individual level. But now step up to the groups and of families and friendships and friendship networks and work groups. 
we can have those organized and functioning according to the principles of pro-social world, which if you were awake in the previous two hours, you probably know what I mean by that. Uh, or we could have uh, groups that lack cohesion as, as individuals pursue their own well-being, often at the cost of others. We can promote competition with other groups. Uh, this is a choice that we have. But then move up to the level of corporations, governments, and churches, and I especially emphasize corporations. You can have them organized to select practices on the basis of their benefit to all stockholders, investors, employees, customers, the community, and larger society. Uh, the, the B Corp movement is one way in which uh, uh, corporations are being encouraged to adopt those values and uh, not simply be interested in the well-being of the stakeholders. Or you could have corporations that are organized to maximize the benefit to the individual organization in competition with all rival entities and in disregard to the harms that result. And I submit that we have evolved corporations that are doing just that uh, and they are doing great harm. Uh, think of Facebook. Then there are communities. They can be organized and functioning around the explicit value of ensuring every member's well-being, or they can be riven by divisions as diverse groups and organizations struggle to ensure their well-being at the expense of others. At every level, we have a choice. We can have states and provinces that are acting on the basis of their impact on the well-being of its population and its impact on the rest of society. Or we could have states that are organized without regard to the impact on the larger society, that are supportive of corporations and other organizations that act in their interest at the cost of others. And we can have mistrust of higher levels of organization. And then there are nations. They can act in the interest of the entire population, seeking cooperation with other nations, dedicated to advancing pro-social principles. Or we could have nations that are viewing relations with other nations in terms of a competition, a zero-sum mentality, failing to build cooperation among nations. Um, it's a choice. And at every level, we have that same choice. And at the level of the world, uh, organized around pro-social principles to advance well-being of nations. Or we can have nations act in what they perceive to be their own interest, often in competition with other nations. And what will you get? You get a lot of problems, including climate change. So those are our choices. And I think that we, uh, well, you know what side I'm on. So your answers to the questions I asked at the outset. Uh, if I, I don't know if people could see them as they were being done, um, but um, the, uh, I think Neil's gonna show them, okay. So 95% of the people said they're not satisfied with the state of the world. Yep. And uh, let's see, 69% said that they are frustrated by not knowing what you can do to affect your problems. Okay. And would you like to contribute to change that would require not quitting your job, your education, your family, your leisure? 95%. I have values to action is organized to to help with all three of these so if you give me back my slides i'll explain what i mean by that thank you um we create action circles and they're designed to address the questions that i asked at the outset if you're not satisfied with the state of the world study circles or action circles can give you an opportunity to do something concrete about it they help you learn more about how and why we got to the current state and they show you what can be done to evolve a more nurturing society. 
by being time limited, they give you a way to contribute to change that doesn't require you to quit your job, your education, your family. It, it, it puts you in, a, in contact with like-minded nurturing people as well. And I submit that we are at a point where a social movement is underway to try and improve nurturance, though you could call it other things if you like. Um, action circles are a vehicle to the reform of every sector of society. An action circle consists of a small group of people who come together to advance a very specific improvement. The idea comes from Swedish study circles, which has been a key component of uh, social democracy for 100 years in, in Sweden. And they can make a major contribution to social movement that's needed to promote uh, nurturing societies. So, um, Let me give you some examples. Uh, we're creating action circles that, and, and what we're doing is we're designing an action, action circle that could be, then we could help action circles uh, in every community. So one of them would be uh, increasing the use of evidence-based social emotional learning in schools, the good behavior game and cooperative learning. We're in the midst of uh, helping groups in local communities to get one or both of these programs implemented because of their benefit. And we're doing it in that way in small ways. The action circle could work just with a few teachers in one school and get the kind of uh, benefit that then spreads because other people want to do it because it's working for them. Uh, we are doing a similar thing to increase effective reading instruction. Uh, and uh, and uh, actually, here where I live here in Eugene, Oregon, has been some of the best research on reading instruction, but it hasn't been widely adopted. We believe that we can create action circles that help teachers to improve reading, but also help the uh, community. And so in disadvantaged communities in this country where there are disparities in reading skill that are risk factors for the development of many later problems in life, we believe that we can increase the quality of reading instruction with teachers just by you know, helping individual teachers to do this, but we can also do supplemental instruction outside of the classroom if necessary. And there's also a book called uh, How to Teach Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons, which has been uh, used by more than a million people to teach their kids, including I taught my uh, sons, actually my wife is the expert on direct instruction, but uh, that's how I knew about the book. We taught our sons to read uh, with that book, but uh, I, then my son uh, taught his son, Grayson, to read with the very same book. Anyway, uh, action circles could strengthen support for refugee communities. We're working on that. An action circle to design what local action circles can do to promote policies that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we're also creating an action circle uh, to help disadvantaged uh, communities uh, deal with the higher levels of pollution that are typically found there. These are just examples and we're just getting started. We've got about 120 people who joined Valleys to Action and are, uh, we're starting to form up these action circles. Uh, and I, I believe that this is one way that we can promote the social movement that is needed to make our society more nurturing and we can do it one action circle at a time. But think about it. Think about a hundred action circles working in disadvantaged communities uh, and what they could do uh, in, in those communities. I'm excited about it, you may have noticed. Um, 
So they, so the action circle can produce a useful product at the same time then it lays the foundation for subsequent action circles to build on that foundation. Um, so um, the problem of pollution in disadvantaged neighborhoods, uh, there's a book by Heather McGee called The Sum of Us that documents the fact that poorer people, black, indigenous, people of color are more likely to live in areas that have high levels of pollution. It's one reason that poorer people have a lower life expectancy. Um, so um, this uh, is um, this um, summarizes that um, the action circles on pollution would analyze policies that have enabled corporations to pollute without consequences. Uh, we'd identify examples of successful efforts to combat the problem. All of this will go on our website and we will have a database, a growing database of all the organizations and all the examples of successful efforts to deal with the problem of pollution in neighborhoods. And we will get stronger as we bring these organizations together and we facilitate their success and we we make use of what, what's already working. Uh, and and this need, you know, working on pollution needs to be linked to all of the other ways in which we're trying to reduce this advantage. Uh, so if it chose to, an action circle could turn to the effort of bringing about a change in a particular community, but even if it did not, it would be laying the groundwork for action. So an action circle that makes it, has success in one community can feed other uh, communities to be able to do these things. Um, so if you want to join Values to Action, here's a uh, link to that. Uh, but I think we should turn to questions. And I think, yes. Uh, so I can look at some of them in chat. Uh, okay. Oh, the book. Uh, you want the book on uh, direct instruction? How to teach your child to read in 100 easy lessons. Is that... Is that you finished, Dr. Biglin? Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh -huh. That was a brilliant I presentation. Am. So will we just do the, the Q&A sort of we normally like a back and forth. So I would switch my cam on as well and just ask you the questions. All right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, let me ask on the one on direct instruction. The book is how to teach your child to read in 100 easy lessons. But I wanted to mention that um, I our uh, son and daughter-in-law had a date night. And so uh, I was supposed to read to Grayson, uh, my grandson, when he was about four years old, and he wanted me to read a story. And he pulled out the very book that I'd used to teach his father to read, which his father was teaching him to read. And I read a story. I was very touched by that. So. Brilliant. Um, okay. So if, in terms of the action circles, um, how can someone, say someone here in the UK is really interested in actually setting up their own action circle in their city, um, what are the practical steps that they can take to actually do that? Uh, it's pretty simple. Uh, you pay $47 to Values to Action to join. Uh, and um, we're, you know, we're, we're trying to get more money flowing to this organization so we can support it. If I could hire two uh, more people to work on it, we could do it a lot faster. But uh, if you've got a problem that you're interested in, we'll get on Zoom and talk about it. And I, I will tell you that um, I just, you know, the examples I gave you are, are ones that have just come up when somebody said, um, 
I mean, there, there's a there's a friend of mine I play basketball with, and his, he said his wife is concerned about the pollution in their neighborhood, which is a low, you know more working class neighborhood, and so uh, she and her mother, who've read uh, my books, God bless them, want to want to look at this. So we're going to get together and we're going to see what we can do. But and they're interested in dealing with pollution in Eugene, Oregon. But we can do that in a way that where we find out what worked elsewhere, and we we will we will take all that stuff and put it on our website and make it available. And so we're not just doing Eugene, Oregon in this. We're figuring out how we can do it elsewhere as well, and we'll get better as time goes by. So yeah, if somebody wanted to explore doing an action circle in the UK, uh, I'm open to talking about it to the extent that I have the wherewithal to, you know. I mean, if I'm really successful, uh, I may be overwhelmed with what, what can be done, but I'm very excited about it. I spent 40 years doing research on trying to find ways to improve well-being, uh, and now I feel like the action is in actually implementing this stuff. 100%. Um, I'd actually just like to ask you about your own context, Dr. Bigden. You know, um, you've been a clinical psychologist in the past, and I'd just like to, to know more about the trajectory that's brought you to where you currently are. So maybe if you could just tell us a bit about your background and how you got in, interested in doing this work. Well, I was originally changed as a social psychologist at the University of Illinois, and uh, but I've always been interested in politics. I was the president of the students for Robert Kennedy at the University of Illinois in 1968. And uh, I, he died on my birthday. Uh, it was a very meaningful experience to me. Uh, you know, so I went into psychology and I became a social psychologist. And uh, right after I got my doctoral dissertation done and got my PhD, I decided I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. So I got an extra year of clinical training and became a clinical psychologist. But I've always had an interest in society more generally. And um, so, hmm, how did, I, how did I get here? I did about 40 years of research on prevention. Uh, I was the president of the Society for Prevention Research and you know, developing programs that had preventive effects. A lot of it was in tobacco control, but uh, we soon learned that kids who smoked were also more likely to use other substances to have depression and so on. So I, we increasingly began to focus on the context that produced all these problems. So I've just, you know, as, I, as a member of the behavioral science community, I've learned a lot uh, and I, you know, I just, have wanted to apply it. And now at the ripe old age of 76, um, I think I'm making more progress than ever in actually getting these things done because we do a randomized trial, we would publish it, it would be you know, highly cited by other scientists and so on and so forth, uh, but not having as big a, an impact on society as we might. And this is true, I mean, uh, I don't know if, I think if you ask David Sloan Wilson, he would say he's had the same um, challenge that the that the academics uh, are reinforced for publishing and they do a lot of it and they do some very good work uh, but we are in a, we've got to translate this into well-being of the entire society and he talked I'm sure about contextual behavioral science 
and then and because contextual behavioral science is focused on not simply predicting or understanding how these things work, but actually making a difference. So it's a much more uh, integrated, you know, a basic science into applied science. And he and I and Steve Hayes and thousands of other people are on the same page on that. A hundred percent. Yeah, it does. Help? It does. I've heard you say in another interview one time that, and you might not remember saying this, um, and I might, I might be getting it wrong, but it was something like, if you're interested in having an impact in the world or changing the world, learn behavioral science. Um, that was that was kind of something yes. that you said, and I'd just be curious, maybe if you could expand about, upon that and why that's important. Well, um, you know, that was the the, the promise of B.F. Skinner, that, uh, that a, a science of human behavior would understand how behavior uh, is is established and changed, shaped and maintained, and um, um, we've made enormous progress on that. I mean, the 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 stuff I just presented is a very you know brief summary of all of the things we've learned about how you can improve well-being. And so now it's a question of making those things widely available. If you take uh, the uh, the, the the nurse family partnership, for example, there are a couple hundred thousand, you know, families that have benefited from that, but but it's still limited in what's what's being done. We need this in every community. We need to build cultures, and I submit that the foundational value for that is I want to live in a society in which every person is cared for. It's I don't want to live in a society where some do very well and so much for the rest of them never mind um and so i'm um i you know I, let me go back to act i get up every morning and very often i go what the hell am i doing how could i possibly make a difference on any of this and it's you know i can have those thoughts and then I turn to my to-do list and I do the next thing that I think uh, could move me and maybe some other people in the direction that I want to take, that, that I think society needs to go. And so, you know, this comes back to, no, I, I think I figured out a way that you can make a contribution to this without having to give up your family and become a full-time activist who, you know, lives off, you know, the soup cans and so on. Um, and that, and that you can be part of a movement that's making a difference. Uh, and, and so one of the things that I've really pushed and written essays for, for, on da for David's uh, This View of Life is the need for a coalition that brings everybody together around that vision. You know, he, he talked about, uh, you're, you're too young to remember that in the, the Vietnam War we had peace sign uh, and, you know, I, I had one with a uh, uh, leather strap and I wore that proudly and, uh, you know, in the 1960s and you saw other people with them and you knew, I mean, there was a symbol that, that brought all of us together against the war. Um, we need that kind of thing. I don't know. You come up with a logo for nurturance. You know, I've got this values to action logo, but I don't, I don't care what it is, but we need something that brings everybody together, that you immediately get it, that this is a person who wants to ensure the well-being of every person and is working to do that in whatever way they can. Big time, big time. Um, 
So you've been researching researching this for 40 years, you said, right? I'd be curious yeah. to ask, um, and maybe nothing will come to mind, but over the course of those 40 years, what has surprised you the most? Like, have there been any research findings that have that have shocked you or surprised you that that's, might seem counterintuitive to most people? I don't think... Hmm. Well, I suppose the thing that that sort of changed my trajectory early on was uh, a colleague of mine got me to start reading B.F. Skinner. And uh, I... I was uh, I was actually on the board of the American Civil Liberties Union in the state of Washington, and if you know the ACLU, this these are people who believe in freedom, and uh, not people not being coerced. And I resigned when I started reading Skinner because Skinner seemed to be a determinist, and and um, but. Uh, but I figured I, I eventually figured that out. In fact, I ended up being the president of the ACLU of Oregon uh, several years later. But the the thing that was different with what Skinner was saying is that science is relevant to every aspect of human behavior, and we need an analysis that that helps us to understand what influences behavior. There were many weaknesses in Skinner's uh, analysis, but I think we've uh, thanks in large part to the contextual behavioral science movement we've made. Uh, great progress on that, and I think David has talked about that. I, I think we now have a, a a pretty much a unified understanding of what human beings need, and it's a question of translating it into practical action. At and the the thing I always add to the the contextual behavioral science movement is public health. Public health perspective is very simple. It's the incidence and prevalence of a problem in the society. And you can deal, you know, with uh, smoking. You can deal with uh, COVID-19 in terms of incidence prevalence. Are you making progress? Uh, yeah, we got to reduce the incidence of this disease, which is where public health came from. But it's as applicable to kindness and the incidence of kindness in, in a community. Uh, and so, you know, most psychologists have been focused on the behavior of an individual and the working on the behavior of an individual. And that's where we've learned so much about human behavior. But we need to look up from that and figure out how we can affect the incidence in a population. If we do not do that, uh, many people will benefit. They'll tend to be the wealthier people who can afford good programs and good neighborhoods and so on. But we have to measure this in terms of the well-being of the entire population. It can be a value, but it can also be operationally defined in terms of the incidence and prevalence of, of illness, psychological and behavioral problems, or the incidence and prevalence of warmth and caring and respect and so on. 100%. Um, so we've got a question here from Samantha. Um, Samantha says, can I ask about how you would consider action circles working specifically? What activities could they do? For example, I work in education and mental health, and I am a PPP facilitator. If I set up one locally with other like-minded people, would we arrange local events and training and support around our skill levels? And she says, apologies if the question isn't right for here. But I, think it's, I think it's a good question. Uh, what's PPP? Yeah, what is PPP? I'm not sure. Oh, triple P. Yeah, no, I know. It's uh, the uh, the program I described that was uh, tested in Southern, uh, South, uh, South Carolina. Um, I, I think 
Go back over some of that question. I, um, okay, so can I ask about how you would consider action circles working specifically? What activities could they do? Well, it depends on what you want to affect. Uh, if you're working with uh, the uh, Triple P program, uh, then it might be a question of getting the Triple P program uh, widely implemented. So an action circle once, uh, I, I would advocate that an action circle try to define a goal that, that could be achieved and then, you know, maybe two months work. Uh, if you had six to 10 people willing to put 15 minutes a day into it, can you do something? So uh, if you thought that Triple P and its dissemination was something that you wanted to do, then the question would become, well, how could we do that? Well, a couple people in that action circle could look at the vast literature on Triple P, uh, could reach out to uh, uh, Matt Sanders uh, and uh, say, you know, how have you gotten this widely adopted? How could we get it adopted in our community so that you're getting clearer and clearer about what seems to work in getting it adopted? Uh, somebody else could work on, or or maybe a pair of people could work on, um, what are the organizations in the community that might adopt this? Somebody else could work on, uh, how could we get community support? Who are community influentials who would be supportive of this? What are the policies that affect whether or not it could be done? So you, you brace, basically break the problem down into you know segments uh, and work on those segments. Uh, in the work we're doing in, in creating uh, action circles to uh, work on a child and adolescent well-being, uh, one of the things that we're doing is uh, trying to help them to uh, do community organizing. And so you want a community influential in your group. You want somebody who's powerful in organizations. You want some of the people who would actually implement the program. You want some family members. Uh, on reading instruction where uh, there are disparities, uh, we would want minority group members who are concerned about this. Uh, we'd want some teachers who are interested in it. We might have some churches uh, that might be willing to do supplemental instruction uh, on reading. Um, and um, it, it, I don't know, I, those are hopefully give you some glimmers of how that could be done. And if you're you know, seriously interested, pay your $47 and I'll tell you how to do it. Um, next question is from Zoe. Um, how would you apply this to designing L&D training and helping employees, managers, and, treacher, and leaders to change their behavior at work? For example, nudges after a learning in intervention, leaders creating the right organization, organizational culture, etc. So I assume L&D is learning and development. Okay, so this is in a work setting. I, you know, I I saw that and then it disappeared yeah. uh, as you were reading it. I, I want to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is this yeah. from Zoe? Systematic team coach. I would hold. Uh, it's on up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. How would you apply this? Well. Uh, the first thing I'd start thinking about is the uh, pro-social world uh, approach. Um, I, you know, I, and, and which really lines up with the management style I've used in, you know, running all these programs. Uh, I believe in participation. Uh, and so uh, the first thing I would do um, 
is try and find people in the organization who um, would like to define uh, a more cooperative process. And I would use uh, techniques like pro-social world uses uh, or and what good behavior game uses. If this were a really good functioning group, if this, if this were the best group that you'd ever worked in, what would you see, hear, feel, and do more of? And I would have people actually uh, articulate that. Uh, and then I would ask, what would you like to see, hear, feel, and do less of? And articulate that. Okay, so now you have people participating and saying what kinds of things they want. So that's that's a start on that. But then I take them around. I don't know if David took you through the the pro social matrix, but it, you know it's based on acceptance and commitment therapy. So uh, think of the upper right hand quadrant. Uh, you've got the things that people aspire to and the things they want to see less of. But then you go over to, well, what thoughts and feelings would get in the way of, of behaving in the ways that you'd like yourself and others to behave? And what behaviors would move you away from the, the things you aspire to? And what could we do to advance those things? And one of the things you could do would be to, to have to increase participation uh, and and increase uh, report, uh, respect and support. There are a lot of different uh, groups and organizations are doing that. I think of the work of uh, friends of mine uh, who've been doing this for uh, 30 years. Uh, they have, uh, this is Peter and Susan Glazer, uh, uh, the Glazer Associates, and they have a card, for example, and they, they teach this and they have video on it. And one of the skills is responding to criticism. And so how do we respond to criticism? Well, we don't like criticism. So we say, no, that's not true. You're wrong. And that doesn't work. But uh, in responding to criticism, you could first stop and listen, get more information. So you said that I was rude. I mean, are you thinking about the other day in that meeting when I cut you off? Yeah. Oh, okay. I understand that. And you actually help them to articulate uh, the problem because usually uh, people in, in conflict say, you know, you're, you're crude and you're, 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 uh, you're nasty. Well, that's not a behavior. Okay. What did I do? Help me understand what I did. And so people get better at focusing on, on criticism and taking the criticism and listening to it and, and, and reduce the conflict as a result. The other side of this card is raising delicate issues. How do you bring up a problem with someone? Well, you do it by, uh, uh, editing out con accusative language and you're not, you're nasty or you're, you're inconsiderate, but rather, you know, when you did this, uh, that was a problem. It made me feel this way and so on. So there are, there are all, the, all of these skills that are available to help, but I think that, um, um, let's ask Zoe how I'm doing on this. In the meantime, uh, Dr. Bergen, I could ask you the next question from, from Matthew. Okay. Yeah. So Matthew says, I've been working with young people in, in gangs and young, offend, young offenders, promoting values such as kindness can sometimes put them at risk in a group where this might be misinterpreted as a weakness or vulnerability. There is a great opportunity for these young people to empathically support each other, but how would you implement these values within this context? You know, we published a paper uh, on how the kernels that are used in uh, the good behavior game uh, 
could be relevant to other settings. And there's a section in that paper that uh, uh, Dennis Embry wrote about how he worked with uh, antisocial kids uh, in groups and how he um, got kids in different groups. You know, you know, they were in different gangs, but he got them working together. And so uh, if, you, if you email me, I'll send you a copy of that paper. Um, and I, I think that the concern is well taken. The trick is to get people working together in groups and reward the group for uh, what they're doing. And so you're trying to get kids to cooperate. Um, I'm not sure that I want to start teaching them kindness because as, as the, the question suggests, uh, that might show weakness and, you know, uh, kids kids are quick to be angry and tough in dangerous worlds because it makes it less likely that people attack them and so on. So, you know, that's understandable. So I wouldn't take, I wouldn't do a frontal assault on that. I'd rather start to get them working together on things that they could uh, uh, achieve a, a product that's reinforcing for, you know, for the group. And you can have the, uh, do that. Uh, cooperative learning is a program that uh, I mentioned I have a colleague who uh, uses that in uh, classrooms, and that could be adapted to working with uh, uh, any kind of youth group. Uh, and if you email me at Tony, T-O-N-Y, uh, at ORI.org, I can provide you more information about that. So I think those would be uh, some of the strategies uh, that could be useful, though I would defer to Mark Van Ryzen, who does the cooperative learning, or Dennis Embry, uh, uh, with uh, some great ideas uh, for how this can be done. Uh, you know, the if you had to get it down to one sentence, um, the sentence would, for me, would be reinforce alternative behavior. We usually deal with problems by frontal assault. You know, when you yelled at that kid, uh, that was a problem, and he doesn't like you for that. And can't you see that, you know, uh, no, we need to reinforce positive behavior. What the good behavior game does, it doesn't confront anybody about their problem behavior. In fact, it gets them to to uh, get on board with, oh, yeah, we want to see less of this. Spleens is D Dennis's made-up word because it takes the venom out of it. It's not you're bad, you're stupid, you're ignorant, you're no good. It's just like, oh, yeah, uh, that's a behavior we don't want. And so we'll try and have less of that. And, a, you know, a teacher knows they're doing well when a kid says, teacher, that was a spleen. And the teacher can say, yeah, you're right. I need to reduce that. They're modeling. Yeah, we want to have less of this. We want to have more. of hundred um, percent. So I'd be curious to ask if, let's say next week you received an invitation from a major government, let's say the, the UK government, and they say, Dr. Bigley, we want you to come in and we want you to advise um, our policymakers and how we can best improve society. And you've got you've got an hour. You know, what what would you be focusing on in that that hour? Like, what would be the key things you'd be wanting to get across? And what would you want them to address? Would it would your starting point be education? Like, what would you what would you prioritize there? Well, it'd be pretty much all the things I've covered. I would argue that I've I pretty much in, you know, an hour, what you can do in an hour, covered everything from what does a baby need to become a toddler, to become, you know, and so on, the developmental phases and so on, and you need to change all that. But you, you, 
you can change it by improving the moment-to-moment -moment interactions between parents and kids and teachers and kids. But if you continue to have a highly unequal society or high levels of poverty, that's a context that makes it very difficult for teacher, uh, for uh, for parents to be, uh, you know. So we have to deal with this at all of those levels. Uh, we need to, to to nurture the well the, the the positive social behavior of individuals, but we need to have groups that are are uh, reinforcing. Um, the you know, it's uh, Stephen Hawking used to tell a story about the. Uh, he gave a talk about uh, the origins of the universe and somebody at the end question and answer said, yeah, but isn't it true that the universe is on the back of a turtle? And Hawking goes, well, you know, what's the turtle? And he says, oh, no, no, Sonny, I'm on to it. It's turtles all the way down. Well, you know, if, if you want a mother to be more loving to a child, uh, you've got to have a therapist who is loving to the mother. And if you have a therapist who's going to be loving to the mother. You have to have an organization that's supportive of that person. What do people get paid doing this work? Uh, you know, compared to what, uh, you know, people in London are making in the financial industry, you know, our contingencies need to be changed. So uh, I wouldn't have a lot of hope that you put me in front of uh, leaders of England in an hour and we're going to do it. But if I had uh, a lot of people behind me. In fact, we have an opportunity to do just this in the United States, where uh, a group of us, a coalition of behavioral science organizations, are going to see if we can influence the National Institutes of Health to do more to focus on the social determinants of health, of poverty and racism and discrimination. Um, so we need a movement, and um, we need thousands of people to take a little bit of their time, don't have to give up your job, uh, to, to work on these things. And we can do it. We can create a society. You know, uh, uh, Robert Putnam published a book, uh, uh, Upswing, uh, which was the history of how over the first half of the 20th century, uh, unity and working together and well-being rose and rose and rose as a result of the Depression and the, the Second World War and so on. And then in the 1970s, it started to decline. And it declined because of the advocacy for take care of yourself and everybody will be fine. Uh, and so we it, the time is now for a social movement that, that gets people working together for the well-being of every person. Uh, and we got something we didn't have 50 years ago, and that's a science of human behavior that's on solid ground, that we know the things that work, and it's it's a matter of putting them into use. Definitely. And we've just got a question. What was the book title you mentioned, Robert Robert Putnam? Yeah, Upswing. Actually, if you go to medium.com and search my name, I have a review of Upswing. Um, and... Um, it, you know, it, it's a basic history of uh, the 20th century, mostly in America, but, you know, these these trends are similar, I think, in other countries. Great. And uh, Daniela is just asking a question around what's the current status of the the action circles? Like, what stage are you at with uh, sort of rolling this project out? You know, is it early stages? It, you know, which countries are they in? Like, how, how is it developing? Yeah. Early stages, very early stages. Um, you know, there's this old saw about, you know, if, if you have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. But I must say, uh, almost every day, 
something comes up, I say, yeah, I can see how an action circle could make a difference. The stuff we're doing on reading instruction, is, it, it, just, it really excites me because I have a history of doing research in that. And I know some of the leading people, but like one of the people who wrote how to teach your children to read in 100 easy lessons. And so we have the knowledge and I'm pretty sure we could help neighborhoods of concentrated disadvantage increase the reading skill of kids, which is enormous in terms of their uh, subsequent well-being. So, uh, but it's very early. Uh, David wants me to write an essay about the action circles, but I'm a little hesitant to do it because um, I'd like to get some more data. I'm still a scientist, so. 100%. Well, Dr. Biglin, that's that's all the questions we've got. Um, just want to say thank you so much for um, just taking the time today to share share the, this this work that you've been doing over the past 40 years with. I really appreciate it. And just before people go, is there any any sort of final actions you'd recommend people to take? Actually, people are asking for your email address. Again, it's, it's tony at ori.org. Is that right? ORI stands for Oregon Research Institute. Tony with a Y, yes. yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. And um, and you can go to Values to Action and, and learn more about that. Um, and then I have my, you know, uh, there's some uh, website that is vetting people's backgrounds, you know, because everybody's got a background. You've got a background, I, you know. And so they've been saying which ones they like. And so it turns out that having a pineapple behind you is for some reason liked but you shouldn't have your books. So I have my books here with a tacky book promotion because it's considered tacky to have that, but those, those are the books. Um, but um, let me say this, what you have done in creating this is I think noteworthy in and of itself. Uh, you are making a contribution to the spread of these ideas and, and to a more nurturing society. So I thank you for inviting me to do to talk. Uh, well, thanks very much. I really appreciate that. Um, but it's just, it's not really possible without the likes of yourself coming on board and taking the time out of your out of your schedule to do it. Um, also, we've got a lot of people in the background as well. Like um, my younger sister is do, doing a lot of customer support today as well. Um, Natalie during the week and everything too. So there's there's a, there's, there's people doing these behind the scenes that don't really get, get credit for it. So that's really important. Um, so Dr. Biggin, that's, I think that's pretty much everything. Thanks again for um, just for sharing this with us. And I just wish you the best luck going forward with um, Values to Action. And hopefully we'll see some action circles sp sprouting up around the UK as a result of this as well. I, I look forward to it. And by the way, is, is did you record? This, this? is recorded, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. So I'll, we'll back channel about that. Sounds good. So. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thanks everybody for Thank tuning you. in and I hope to see you all soon. This episode is sponsored by our upcoming Mind Body Psychotherapy online conference taking place on the 29th of May, 2022. In this lecture series, we'll explore the fascinating new science of the mind-body connection and how it can be applied to transform therapeutic practice. You'll learn how the mind affects us biologically, how what happens in the body influences the mind, and how to apply these cutting-edge insights to enhance your therapeutic work. We'll have talks from three speakers at the forefront of the field, including Dr. Pat Ogden, who will present on sensory motor psychotherapy in context, 
Susan Aposhin, who will give a talk on her innovative body-mind psychotherapy approach. And Deirdre Fay, whose topic will be Becoming Safely Embodied. By attending live, you can interact with the speakers in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, get CPD certification and lifetime access to the recordings from the sessions. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash mb-2022 and use the discount code POD when registering. That's POD, all one word, when registering.